Amen. Please uh, be seated. If you are a elementary age kiddo, you can follow that kid, Keegan, out the door into the uh, classroom back there. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Hanging in there? Good. Here's some voices. I like it when you respond. It's nice. You get making you know you got are breathing at least. So um, that's always always a good benefit. So summer is a wonderful time. It's uh, it's kind of the only time really in our American culture where it's we kind of take a break from things. Where it's we kind of expect to travel. Things slow down. Things kind of loosen up. And uh, I think. I was trying to add up the number of hours I've driven in the past seven weeks, and it's like 80 to 85 hours I've spent in the car. And so you would think that in that amount of time that I would have come to some sort of deep revelation of something, but most of it's just sort of driving. And uh, I try to make it, but a lot of it's also talking to a kid or breaking up a fight or whatever. But it's been uh, it's a lot of time in the car. You think about how much time that Jesus and his disciples just spent walking around. Like they walked from Capernaum to Jerusalem and all these little in-between times, I just want to encourage you that as you're going about your summer, I know we're halfway through or wherever we are, that uh, just take time. It's okay to rest. It's okay to break from something. I mean, God gave us this principle of the Sabbath for resting. And take time as you're going through your week to spend time with the Lord to reflect. Also, just it's okay to just drive a long way and not get anything special done. So just want to give you permission to do that. And we're going to be finishing up chapter 7 today as Treb talked in Hebrews and We've talked about this guy, Melchizedek, and this priesthood, and it seems like he may be just be beating this horse to death. But the reality is that Jesus is replacing the Levitical priesthood with himself. And so explaining that to a bunch of Hebrews is really important. And that's what the author is doing. And it's an entirely uh, different way to have a relationship with the one true God. And so the old way has been set aside, has been completed, and Jesus is now coming in, and he's better. Uh, the new covenant, as we're going to get into in chapters 8, 9, and 10, is better than the old covenant. Jesus is a better high priest than the other priesthood. And so, as we finish up this chapter, just stay with this theme and this thread running through the book of Hebrews of the reality that Jesus is sufficient and he is better. And we're going to talk about Jesus a lot. So if you've ever been in a church where like they don't talk about Jesus much, that's, well, that's not this one. So we may get accused of talking about Jesus too much, and that is an accusation I will wear all day long. So before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these last few verses in Hebrews chapter 7. So please pray with me. Lord, we just look to you for help in our time of need, and the reality is that that time for us is always. There is never a moment when we are not in need of your life, of your power, of your grace, of your encouragement, of your rebuke, of your discipline, of your teaching, of your training, of your empowerment, of your sanctification, and the list goes on and on. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed our high priest, and as we're going to look at today, that you intercede for us forever that you are enough for us, that you are able to accomplish what we could never accomplish on our own. And we come to you this morning just confessing our need to you, confessing our desire to know you better, our desire to love you more, our desire to seek you with all of our heart, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so as we get ready to do that, Lord, I just invite 
everyone here to just spend a moment just thanking you for who you are, for your greatness, for your kindness, and to ask you to help, to help us understand more of who you are as our priest. I'm going to invite you to pray for someone around you as we do this all the time, someone who you just met or who you're married to or anyone around you. Just think about them and ask that the Lord would help them today, help them to better understand what it means that Jesus is their high priest and that they can draw near to him. Lord, we just entrust that you are able to teach us through the word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we commit this time to you and ask that you would be glorified in it, that we would be encouraged through it, and that your name would be praised. And it's that name we pray. Amen. So, going back through Hebrews 7 briefly, we talked about this guy Melchizedek a couple weeks ago, who he was, and that he was this priest before uh, the, the law came around. And then Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and we looked at Psalm 110, which is a lot of really wanted a, a, an extrapolation of the whole book of Hebrews is from that psalm, and the fact that Jesus is this priest forever according to this order of Melchizedek, and he is that way because of he does this by the power of an indestructible life, and because of this oath that God made that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so why that was important and the reality of it. And now we're going to look at um, some of the qualities of Jesus as a high priest in starting in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. So let's dig into it. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, for, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So we look at verse 23 there, and it says, Now, uh, there have been many of the, those priests, talking about the priests before under the Levitical law, these, this line of Levitical priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office, which is a really polite way of saying that they kept dying, so you had to keep making more. So this guy would be priest, or this guy would be high priest, and they would serve, interceding, doing, taking the offerings and atoning for the sins of the people, but then they would grow old and they would die, and then you would need a new one. And so their office was limited because they kept dying. But, do you see in verse 24, there's this contrast here. But, and what is being contrasted? Death is what is contrasted with because Jesus lives forever. So the contrast there is that this, this human office was ruled by death. Jesus' office as high priest is ruled by life because remember, he, he has this priesthood on the basis of the power of an indestructible life as we looked at last week. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. It doesn't end because their priesthood would end when they would die. Jesus is doesn't because Jesus rose from the dead. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave never to die again. 
And he is the author of life. He is life in itself. He has intrinsic life in himself. And he will never die. Like when we say that we worship Jesus, we mean that we worship the guy from Nazareth who died on a cross and rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven and we're waiting for his return. And you may think we're crazy, but we actually worship a man who is both fully man and fully God and who will live forever. That's Jesus. We don't just worship an idea. We don't worship some guy who founded a religion and died. We worship the living God. And so it says that Jesus lives forever, and it's because of his life that his priesthood is permanent. So in verse 25, it says, Therefore, he is able. So that word for able um, is the, the, like a Greek word that means power, dynamis, and it's this idea of he's not just, it means to be capable, to be strong and powerful, and to have power by virtue of your own ability. So it's not just that Jesus is able because Jesus is great. Jesus is able to do something because of the virtue of his own ability. What is he able to do? He's able to save completely. Your virgin may say save forever or save to the uttermost. And so when you look at that word, he's able to save completely. It means, so I had to look up the word uttermost because honestly I don't use that word ever. And uh, I think we have some songs that say it, but like I never say you know, uh, you know, Jenny, I love you to the uttermost. That was probably really romantic, but I, she, I, we just don't talk like that. And so I had to look up the word, uttermost. And uh, so it means most extreme, to the highest degree, to the highest intensity, or to the greatest extent. Let me say that again. Uttermost means the most extreme, the highest degree, the highest intensity, and the greatest extent. Like as far as something can go, that's the uttermost. And so Jesus has the power, by virtue of his own ability, to save to the furthest degree, to the greatest extent, to the highest intensity. Who? Those who come to God through him, or those who draw near to God. So Jesus is able to save. Do not miss that phrase, because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. That Jesus is able to save. To save how? To the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. Who? Those who draw near to God through him. And then it says, because he always lives to do what? To intercede for them. So remember, the office of a priest, the priesthood is an intercessory office, right? And it means that you're standing between two things. The, um, like in Spanish, the, this word is, is an advocate, like a lawyer, like you think of an attorney standing between the judge and the defendant, right? And so you have Jesus standing between the sinner and the father. And he's still there. Why? Because it says he always lives to intercede for who? For those who draw near to God. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's interceding. He's interceding for you and for me for anyone who will draw near to God, Jesus intercedes on their behalf. So God in his, in the, God the Father, in his utter, majestic, almighty holiness, will not be in the presence of sin. Okay, we don't really talk about this enough. God does not like play with sin. He's not like, you know, sin is bad, I know, but it's probably going to be okay. Uh, no. God sees sin and he hates it and he destroys it. Because sin brings death. And death is the opposite of God who brings life. It's not like God and sin are in a disagreement. 
and the devil's like, well, I've got some arguments. No, sin is wrong. It's everything that is contrary to the great, holy, majestic, beautiful character of God. And our, the world that we live in keeps trying to sort of pet sin. It's like, oh, it's, it's okay. It's, it's all right. It's just, no, sin is awful. It causes death. Where sin is working, it gets paid in death. Death of all kinds. You hear us saying this all the time. It's paid in the death of relationships, paid in the death of trust, death of hope, death of life, death of real death. Sin is bad. And Jesus intercedes between the sinner and a holy God. And he's doing it now. See, he died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father until he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. We're in that until time where he is interceding on our behalf because we need him to. So speaking about need, we roll into verse 26 where it says, Such a high priest, or this kind of high priest, meets our need. He meets our need. It's so amazing. Uh, if, you, if you don't think that you need Jesus, you're just, you do. You're just not knowing it. I promise you that you need him. Why? Because you're human and you're limited. And Jesus is not limited. And we need him. Why? Because he is holy. He is blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So holy is really about Jesus' character. About the, the, it's, it's the inward quality of who he is. Jesus is holy. And it says he is blameless or innocent. This is like the outward expression, how he related to people. I mean, what did the Pharisees blame Jesus for? I blamed him for blasphemy because he said he was God's son. Of course, he is, and it's true. So it's hard to argue with that when it's true. They blamed him for healing people on the Sabbath. They blamed him for, uh, for treating people that they didn't think should be treated with kindness, with kindness. They blamed him for being around sinners. These are things that they blamed him for. But in the eyes of God, the only eyes that matter, Jesus is blameless. He is innocent in how he related and responded and reacted to people. The holiness that was in his character was always expressed in his relationships to other people. He is innocent. He is pure or unblemished. Meaning that Jesus was around sinners, like bad ones, like prostitutes and thieves and murderers and uh, traitors, all the things that we think are bad, those people flocked to Jesus. They were all around him. Do you remember the Pharisees that come in and they're like, Who are, how can you dine with sinners? That's all they just described this group of people as sinners. And Jesus' response was, well, the sick, it's the sick who need a doctor. I don't come for the righteous, I come for the sinner. It's a remarkable thing that he says. And yet he was never stained by their sin. He could be around the vilest sinner in the world, like the guy that's standing right up here talking to you. Or Paul, who said he is the worst of all sinners. And Jesus is unstained by their sin. It's amazing. He could be around sinful people and not be blemished or stained by them. The next thing it says, he is set apart from sinners. So even though Jesus was able to fully engage in the life and redemption of sinful people, he was always set apart from them. He was never stained by the sin of the sinner. And because of that, he was able to truly and fully minister to people in their need. 
And the last thing is that he is exalted above the heavens. Jesus has been lifted up. He has ascended, and he is now sitting at the right hand of God, and he is exalted. He is lifted up high. He is to be worshiped. He is to be praised. And Jesus is now calling us to be exalted with him. Do you, you've got to understand that. In this process, Jesus is calling us to be holy, calling us to be blameless, pure, set apart, and exalted. He is bringing us up to his level. He is sanctifying us to make us more like him. Then in verse 27, it says, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So obviously you you have this picture of the temple of God that we're going to get into in these next several chapters. And you have this, this Holy of Holies and then these courts that were distant from the Holy of Holies. And then before all of that was this altar where they would kill an animal for, uh, to atone for the sin of the people. Well, the priest had to kill an animal to atone for their own sin. And then they had to kill an animal to atone for someone else's sin. And then the next day, guess what they did? They did it all over. And then the next day they did it again. And then when I would go and offer an animal, by the time I would get home, I would sin and turn around and go back to offer another one. It was this constant line of this giant smoke rising up of atonement of animals who were dying for people's sins. But Jesus did not have to do that because he sacrificed for their sins. Who? Right before that it says, for the sins of the people. He sacrificed once for all when he offered himself for the sins of who? Those who sin. Which is, if you read Romans... Everybody, everybody has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. Why? Because they die. Also, they sin and they're just humans. But the oath, this promise, this when the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, it came after the law, and that promise appointed Jesus the Son who has been made perfect forever. All right. So when you think about Jesus and the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is a really fun word to say still, but the idea that this is something that is new for the Hebrew, it is something that is a giant transformation for the Hebrew because the entire mechanism by which they now relate to God has been changed. Changed. Now, in one sense, it hasn't. They always related to God by faith. The righteous will live by faith. It's quoted in Romans, but it's from the prophets. The righteous will live by faith. You had faith in the atoning sacrifice at the altar. You had faith that God would receive, that God would forgive, that God would be gracious. But now the object of our faith, the book of Hebrews is making very clear, is now a person. It is Jesus. And he is the one who helps us. He is the one who stands between us and a holy, righteous God. So, two things that just stand out in here for me is this. The first thing is this, that Jesus, that he is able. Remember I said the word able means to be capable, strong, and powerful, or to have power by virtue of one's own ability, that Jesus is able to do what? Therefore, he is able to save utterly, completely, to the uttermost forever. Who? Those who draw near to God through him, that Jesus is able to save you. I want you to think as I'm saying those words, the devil is the accuser. It's what he does. He brings up sin and he brings up shame and he tries to cover us on it and stomp us into the ground with it. And I want you to think about whatever 
sin is coming to your mind. Maybe it's something that is a, a, kind of a sin that you just like a monkey around your neck or on your back that you cannot get rid of. It's like this constant sin. It's like I keep doing this over and over. I don't know what it is. It could be all number. There's a long list of sins. I don't know if it's pride. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's greed or, or gluttony or lust. Or maybe it's just uh, that you are, are an, just incredibly self-focused. Maybe you are uh, fearful. Maybe you worry all the time. I don't know what the sins are that are like all over you. I've got several, <laughs> I've got a long list. I've got a couple that keep rearing their ugly heads all throughout my life. And the reality is that this verse says something about my relationship to that sin. It says that Jesus is able to save me to the uttermost, to the extreme to the largest and highest degree, to the greatest intensity and extent of my sin. I want you to think about your sin. If, it was, if you could just sin your eyes out, brains out, I don't know what that even looks like. Like, I don't know, go to the Vegas of sin and just like all out sin. Could Jesus save you from that? So if your sin is lust and you had an affair with a thousand women, could Jesus save you from that? If your sin is that you fear all of the time and you walk in fear every day of your life and you double lock all your doors and you won't go anywhere because of fear, can Jesus save you from that? If your sin is pride and you think that you are the center of the universe and you would murder someone for daring to tell you that you've done something wrong, can Jesus save you from that? I want you to look at this piece of wood that we put flowers on. That is the cross of Christ and to the people who wrote the New Testament, it was the most terrifying instrument of torture in human history. And Jesus took that and he said, I want you to see this cross. You've got a piece that goes vertical and a piece that goes horizontal. And if you extend it up and out forever, wherever that will reach, that's how far Jesus can save you. I don't know how deep your sin runs, but it does not run deeper than Jesus' ability to save you from it. He is able to save you to the uttermost. So I don't know where you are or what's going on in your life or what sin is dragging you down, but Jesus can save you from it. Now, if you have never, if you're like, what is he talking about? What is sin? What is all this stuff? Sin is what separates us from a holy God. If you don't ever think that you sinned, Jesus says amazing things in the gospel. I invite you to read Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus looks at people and he says, Hey, you know, in the law it said, don't commit adultery. Well, I say if you ever look lustfully on a woman, you sin. And any man walking in here has done that. Sorry. And he says, the law says don't murder. And I say if you've looked at your brother and said, I hate you, you deserve hell. Sin is very real. And if you're feeling the conviction of it and you've never accepted the salvation of Jesus from it, I ask you today to draw near to him and be saved. To ask him to save you. To say, Lord, I, I feel that I'm separated from you and I need something and what I need is for you to save me from my sin and ask him and he who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved now and always and forever. And that you will enter this process, this beautiful process of sanctification where you will get to know this high priest who always lives to intercede for you. So Jesus is able. Do you trust, just let me ask you this one question. Do you really, really trust that he's able to save you? Because the accuser's voice is so tricky. 
when I am trying to pray and like the discipline of prayer is so hard because my brain is like, it just shoots off everywhere. It's like the focus, focusing for that long is just so hard. And the whole time it's like the accuser is just whispering all the things about me that aren't like Jesus. I'm not blameless or holy or don't feel holy or pure or set apart or exalted. I just feel, I feel weak. I feel like I can't do it and that I need help. And the reality is that that's where we all are. But Jesus is able to save me from my sin. And so every single day I have to wake up and remind myself that he is able. And so I invite you to do the same thing, to trust him to save you from your sin. The second thing is that he is enough or he is sufficient. You'll hear us talk about, through this passage of Hebrews, a lot about the sufficiency of Christ. That means that he is enough. So when you look at the old covenant. The old covenant was weak and it was set aside, as verse 18 says, set aside because of its, it was weak and useless. Not because the law was bad, but because it depended on human beings to maintain it. And so God sends his son, the incarnate Christ, fully man and fully God, to be a sin offering for us. And it says here, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer these sacrifices day after day because he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The, the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross only happened once and it will never happen again. As we're going to get into in these next chapters, the reality is that there is no other sacrifice for sin. You could sacrifice a million trillion bulls for your sin. Worthless. Worthless. Only Christ's sacrifice was enough, but it was enough. And he sacrificed once for all when he offered himself. I want to turn to 1 John chapter 1 real quick. As we draw this to a close, I want to park on these wonderful verses. I don't know who wrote Hebrews. I know John wrote John, but... I hope they knew each other. They probably did. They certainly do now. But John, who wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation, also wrote these little books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he calls us to something in 1st John 1 8. And I want to read these through the lens of Jesus being uh, able to save us and being sufficient to save us. And what that looks like as we live out our daily lives. So it says, if we claim, this is John 1 8, 1st John 1 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the question is, uh, people ask, is, is, okay, is this applying to the believer or to the unbeliever? And I think the answer to that question is yes. So if you claim to be without sin, whoever you are, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't this sound good? Um, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, Jesus, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Look at this in 2.1. My dear, my beloved children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Look at the next word. But if anybody does sin, he writes it so that we won't sin. 
But if you do, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have an advocate who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Who is this Jesus that we talk about? Is he just some guy that we see on shows or in movies? Is he just some leader that is somebody in first century Palestine that was awesome and thought they were going to free them from Roman rule? He's just The Bible is a very, paints a very clear picture of who Jesus is. He is the righteous one. He is God, the Son. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who stands between and is advocates for us. And look at this. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, and he does that just like in Hebrew says. He lives always to intercede for them. What kind of conversation goes on between God the Son and God the Father as he sits and speaks to the Father in our defense? Both of whom love you so very much in incomparable and immeasurable love. So my question to you today is this. Because the only responsibility on us that I see in either of these passages is this. Will you draw near to God? Will you draw near to God? If you have never known him, will you draw near to him now and be saved by him? And if you know him, will you continue to draw near? Because remember, Hebrews is written to believers who are drifting. And the constant cry of the author of Hebrews is draw near to God. James says to submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. John says right here, if you sin, we have one who is faithful and just who will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we have someone who speaks in our defense. So will you draw near to him or not? Because you only have two options. You either draw near to God and are saved, or you don't. And we can talk and argue all day long about once saved and always saved, and if you can, really smart people have disagreed on all these things, and I'm not going to get wired up or mired up in the weeds with this, because the book just says to draw near. So what I'm going to tell you is draw near. If you don't know what that means, we're getting ready to do something that is specifically designed to draw near to God. He created this thing called communion to call us back into fellowship with him. That's the purpose. It's not just to break some bread and dip it in some juice and feel like you've... No, it's so that you can come to the Lord Jesus and say, I'm drawing near to you. These are the sins that are weighing on me. And as we come to communion... As, as we, we, we pray to get ready to do that, I want you to just allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of any sin that is going on in your life. And I want you to draw near to God and be free from it. You are not destined to stay mired in sin. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we now have liberty. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. So whatever sin is binding you down, bring it to the Lord. 
Take the bread. Remember that his body was broken for you. Drink the juice. Remember that you are now under a new covenant, a covenant of freedom, a covenant of grace, a covenant where you have full access to the Father and a high priest who will never stop interceding for you. Let's pray. Lord, we just, oh, I'm a little overwhelmed by the, just the glory of who you are and your kindness toward us. As we get ready to take communion, I pray that you would just lay on all of our hearts the, the things that are keeping us from walking with you, the things that are tripping up our feet, damaging our relationships, hurting our testimony, hurting our neighbor, hurting our wife, our children, hurting our brothers and sisters in Christ, the sin that is entangling us, Help us to bring it to you today. Help us to trust that you are indeed able to save us to the uttermost. And that you are enough to do it. That your grace is indeed sufficient for us. And that we can lay aside all the things that we're trusting in and cling only to Jesus. Draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Help us to confess we need a priest, Lord Jesus. You did not come to abolish the priesthood, but to set up an eternal priesthood. And you are our singular hope. You, Lord Jesus, are our high priest. Help us draw near to you. Release us from our sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So truly, Jesus is able. I mean, what an incredible, incredible truth. Um, I don't know how many of you know this, but we've, we've talked about this before. It's been years, but back in the day, Brandon and Jenny lived in, uh, and their family lived in Guatemala. They were missionaries in Guatemala, um, and we lured them back here with, uh, well, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but uh, there in Guatemala, in the town, right outside the town they were in, there's a, a factory that makes glassware. And uh, we've been down there multiple times with them. Some of the folks here have even spent some time in there. And this, um, this factory, this, this place takes glass from the dump. Um, it goes around, they go around and they gather trash, glass, they get it sent to them, beer bottles, Coke bottles, whatever. And they melt it all down and they make glassware. And, uh, and they turn it into all kinds of stuff. And there's a showroom and we've gone through there. And we purchased all of our communion ware from this place, this place that, essentially takes trash, garbage, um, from the dumps and repurposes it into these beautiful, amazing things, which is really this incredible picture of Jesus being able, right? I mean, we are all these sort of throwaway, sinful, broken people where nothing is out of God's uttermost reach to save. And in some way, we are so much like this communion where that it's remarkable that God takes what should be thrown away and redeems it, saves it, turns it into something holy with a purpose for his glory and his glory alone. And so uh, it's meaningful stuff to us because of what it represents um, in terms of the idea that Jesus is sufficient and he is totally able. You know, the truth is, is that on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that all of his friends and disciples, they would just take off and they would run. They would abandon him. They would leave him. He would be put through a sham of a trial and ultimately crucified. On that very night, he gathered his disciples. And after they had had the meal, he gathered with them and he took bread. And he took this loaf of bread and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body 
and it's broken for you. And in the same way, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant and is being poured out for you. Now, of course, those gathered with Jesus at those moments did not understand what Jesus was referring to. That in the next days, he would not only be crucified, but he would be raised from the dead. And the gift that he was giving them and all of us by connection is this incredible reminder and promise that is in Christ. That not only reminded what Christ did, but we're called to draw near to him. As Brandon mentioned, that this table is that place where we are called to draw near to God. That Jesus is totally and perfectly sufficient. The Bible actually tells us to take seriously the opportunity when we have communion to examine our hearts, to ask the Lord to rid anything in there that would hinder us from knowing him fully, to take seriously the opportunity to draw near to the holy, loving, majestic, mighty, and powerful God. And so this table is not a table of ritual or her habit. It's not something we do just as an expression of worship. It is actually a call of Christ to the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made, that we are savable because of who Jesus is, not because of what we've done, but because Jesus can save us to the uttermost. This morning, we are taking communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying as you come down to the front or the back, if you feel comfortable, of course, um, you can take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup. We do have uh, gluten-free up here, be up at the front if you need that option. We encourage you to examine your heart, and then as you feel led, to either use the station in the front or in the back, and then continue to stand as dawn, our worship team, close us out in worship. But let's pray together as our servers come forward this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the promise of this table, that it is, um, that it is a promise for us in Christ, that it is something that we have been given and we have been allotted that we have been gracefully bestowed upon, Lord, that we did nothing to deserve on our own. Uh, it is yours and yours alone to give. And so, God, we are grateful that we are recipients of your grace and that it is sufficient and that you died once and for all. There is no need to ever die again or sacrifice again. We will only need you. And so remind us, Lord, as we take communion today that your sacrifice was completely and totally sufficient and you are able and that if we have yet to surrender our hearts to Jesus, that maybe today is the call to do just that. So, Lord, as we examine our hearts and we celebrate this promise, this fulfillment of the greatest promise, Lord, that you would draw us into your presence 